0: Merry Christmas and welcome to The Eerie First Podcast, the weekly message series featuring Pastor Nicole Schreiber. We've been in a Christmas series called The Gift. Pastor Nicole is examining the significance of each of the gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus. We know that they brought frankincense, myrrh, and gold, but why did the wise men bring those gifts? So far, we've seen how frankincense symbolized Jesus' status as our high priest. Jesus came to restore the intimacy between God and each of us to overcome our sin and bring us into a loving relationship with God. Last week, we saw that the myrrh prophetically symbolizes Jesus's death on the cross. Today, Pastor Nicole is discussing the most recognizable of the gifts, gold. We know gold's value and its importance, but what is the larger significance of presenting gold to a baby? That's what she's going to discuss today. So let's get started and continue our series, The Gift. Here's Pastor Nicole.
1: Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we're in a message series called The Gift, and we're looking at the three different gifts that the wise men gave to Jesus. Uh, If you recall the Christmas story, Jesus was born to a virgin named Mary, and there were wise men, or magi, very wealthy, educated Gentiles that traveled to come and worship Jesus. I want to tell you a little bit more about the magi. I feel like every week I've come with like a, a bummer of a of a fact or something. The first week I told you there might have been more than three. I audibly heard the crowd be like, "Oh, you know." Then last week we talked about how he probably wasn't a baby. He probably was, um, you know, eight to twelve to maybe eighteen months old, depending on uh, how long it took for them to get to them. So let me tell you some some I think better news about the wise men today. Uh, they were from the east, generally thought to be from Persia. And they followed a star to find where Jesus dwelled. Now, did you know that unusual stars um, have actually been noted in the night sky throughout history when something historic is about to happen? So Jesus isn't the only one uh, that had a, a star in the sky. He's the only Messiah. Of course, he's the only Savior. But when Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar both were born, there was a type of supernova in the sky. I just think that's interesting. Um, The kings probably had some knowledge uh, to look for a star. They knew of the prophetic scriptures of the birth of Christ. In the Old Testament in Numbers 24, it says a star will come from Israel and that will signal the king has arrived. And so the wise men knew this was not just any star. This was his star, the star of the Messiah. It wasn't just another star because someone else great was being born. This was the greatest of the great of all time. Now, one of the things that was different about this star than any other historical star is instead of it moving in the night sky, like stars do, uh, as the earth rotates, this star stood still over the house that Mary and Jesus dwelled. Someone asked me this week, how could the wise men uh, follow the star if it kept moving in the sky? But this one particularly, the scripture says, stood still. And that's how they knew that it was a guide, it was a light for them. Another thing awesome, I think fascinating about the Magi, were they were astronomers. That's what they were by, by trade, by, by interest. And so they knew a thing or two about stars. And they made it their life's work to study the sky. And I love how God gets their attention in this way. He handpicks a customized approach for these wise men. He sends stars to the astronomers because the Savior had been born. He doesn't send a star to the shepherds. They weren't even looking at the stars. He sends a star to the magi who were studying the sky. He sends it to them to say, listen, I am sending a king to bring peace and hope and joy and love, not just to the whole world, but to you, to you magi. And so God met them right where he knew the Magi would find him, and he did a miracle. He sent a guiding star so the Magi could encounter the best miracle in all of history, King Jesus. Some people say it was a comet, a supernova, a conjunction of planets in the sky that night. Others say it was supernatural and maybe not even seen by every onlooker. Perhaps the star was only seen by the kings and no one else could see it, we don't know. But whatever the exact mechanism, the fact that the star led the Magi to Christ is evidence that the star was uniquely designed. It was made by God for a special purpose. God can use extraordinary means for extraordinary purposes, and he will go to great lengths to get each of our attention. And so the three wise men traveled a long way to worship Jesus. And they gave him some very unusual gifts. And we've been looking at those gifts in Matthew chapter 2. And I asked Pastor Andy if he would read the scripture today, uh, Matthew 2, 1 through 2 and 10 through 11.
2: After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh.
1: So the first week we talked about frankincense, and this special gift represented Jesus as our high priest. Uh, Priests are representatives of people to God. And Jesus would become the high priest, the representative from all people to God. Uh, He would sit at the right hand of the Father praying for us and connecting to us. And then last week, we talked about myrrh and how myrrh represents that Jesus would eventually be a suffering servant and the Lamb of God, and he would die on a cross for our sin. Through his blood and through his forgiveness, all people could come to him. So today, we're going to look at the third gift of gold. Now, throughout history, uh, because of the scarcity and the value of gold, it has been known as a good gift fit for a king. So this is probably the gift that makes the most sense uh, that the Magi brought. Essential oils and gold. If you haven't made your Christmas list yet, that's actually probably a good one, right? I want essential oils and gold. The people in that culture were expecting a Messiah, a savior, a king to be born. They actually were waiting expectantly for a king. And the problem is the Jews missed it because they expected the king to be born in a palace surrounded by gold, wealth, luxury, and comfort. No one expected the king to be born in poverty next to farm animals. They didn't expect the savior, the Messiah, to be the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. And so when the Magi packed up their gifts, when they wrapped their presents, they probably imagined giving this gold to a king, someone in luxury, in a palace. And so can you imagine their surprise uh, when they walk up to a stable and they have this gold and frankincense and myrrh wrapped up to give to him? It's interesting, no one expected the Savior, the Messiah, to be the son of a carpenter. Uh, Pastor Andy, would you read to us from John 1? It records a conversation between two men in Galilee, and here's just one moment we see evidence of these kind of upside-down expectations of a king.
2: Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip.
1: So Nathanael could not believe a king could come from that city, Nazareth. No one believed it. You know, as Jesus grew up, I was thinking there was probably a lot of things he did that challenged the expectations of the people. Like no one predicted that the king of glory, the son of God, uh, that he would befriend prostitutes. That he would touch lepers, that he would love uh, the people that the religious institutions <laughs> rejected. They probably never imagined a king who could choose uneducated fishermen and despised tax collectors and rebellious troublemakers and be, hey, you guys are with me. You're my disciples. You're my people. No one ever imagined that a king would forgive a woman in the very, caught in the very act of adultery when the law said she would be stoned, and he made a very different decision about that woman's fate. And then like we talked about last week, no one ever expected a king who was supposed to have power and authority to die a shameful death in front of people mocking him. No one ever thought when he breathed his last, uh, the sky would go dark and the earth would shake and and they would bury a king. Can you imagine all the ways that the expectations were broken of these people waiting for generations for a king to come and save them, and all of a sudden every single thing that's happening to Jesus is just confusing them and, and making them wonder if he really is. And especially no one expected three days later when some women went to check on the tomb, that the stone would be rolled away and that the body would not be there and that the king would rise from the dead and now he sits at the right hand of the Amen. Father Almighty. Amen. You know, it's interesting to me, when you look at the story in the very first century, there are some very distinct responses to Jesus as king. And as I was praying through this, as I was reading the story and asking the Lord for for just a word for today, oddly enough, I think 2,000 years later, um, there are still we still have some very distinct responses to Jesus as King. So the first response I want to look at is from King Herod. Uh, now, if you know this guy, he um, he actually was raised Jewish; his mother was Jewish. He rose to power through his father's good relationship with Julius Caesar, uh, a Roman general and dictator. And after the wise men found Jesus and gave him the gifts. Uh, I want to read in Matthew 2, uh, 12 and 16 what actually happens from there.
2: And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi.
1: Okay, so Herod very clearly and strongly opposed Jesus as king. In fact, he said, listen, if Jesus is king, then actually I want you to find him and kill him. And since I don't know who he is, kill every boy, little boy under the age of two so that we make sure that this king is dead. He very much believed that if there was a king, that would threaten his fame, that would threaten his own position and authority. And so the response of King Herod is is obviously very extreme, very opposing. In fact, to the point of doing things pretty radical to make sure that this king would not rise in power. Now, obviously, um, that is a very extreme response, but I think opposing the kingship of Jesus is a very real response that we often have towards Jesus as king. I even think Christ followers resist Jesus as king sometimes. Let me give you some examples. When we try to make our own decisions and not consult God's favor or wisdom, we oppose Jesus as king of our lives. You can be a little sweet baby, that's great. But but don't don't impose upon me something that you want me to do. When we exalt our own ambitions, our own agenda, our own feelings, we can act like Jesus isn't Lord of our lives. When we don't do the things God asks us to do, like tithing or giving or forgiving or spending time with him or honoring and submitting the authority in our lives, we actively oppose Jesus as king of our lives. Whether we realize it or not, we say, look, I'm in charge of this one and you're not. A.W. Tozer is an author and a theologian. He, he described it this way. I thought it was brilliant. He said, in every person's heart and life, there's a throne. And if self is on the throne, then Christ is on the cross. But if we let Christ be on the throne, then self has to be on the cross. And that takes dying to self and doing things that isn't always our own way. And it takes obeying God when it's tough and choosing the harder path sometimes. Some people like Herod opposed Jesus as king. They refused to bow down and honor him in that way. And I want to ask you a hard question this morning. Is any part of your heart refusing to let Jesus be king? Is any part of your heart refusing to let Jesus be king. So there's a second response, and I think it's profoundly common as well uh, today. The Jewish priests, um, they did not oppose Jesus, but they did dismiss him. The priests who studied the scriptures their entire life, they just kind of blew him off. It was a strange reaction for the priests because They knew the prophecy that the Jewish king would be born in Bethlehem. In fact, I want to read it to you. Um, They could quote it. It's in Micah 5.2. Pastor Andy, would you read that one for us?
2: But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times.
1: They studied this scripture. In fact, uh, theologians say that scholars say they probably memorized this scripture, but these priests were five miles away from Jesus. They were five miles away from Jesus when he was born, but they did not show up to worship Jesus as king. They chose to do nothing. Indifference and apathy are very common responses to Jesus as king. We may know about Jesus, but do we pursue him? We might know all the old battle stories, and we might know that the New Testament says, love one another, and don't gossip or slander, and share your faith often and out loud. But what do we do with that? Like, Do you choose to do nothing? When we're facing a hard situation, we know we should pray. We should fast. We should ask others to pray. We should worship. We should get to a church community. We know that. But what do we do with that the jewish priest response to jesus was to do nothing they didn't oppose the king but they did not honor the king so let me ask you another hard question this christmas is there a part of your life that just like the jewish priests you are dismissing jesus as king so herod opposed jesus priests dismissed jesus but there is a star student. Ooh, that was a good, that, that good plan. Words there. I did not plan. Um, let's get it, star student. Okay. Um, but the final response I want to highlight today is the wise men. What did the wise men do? Matthew
2: 2.11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Mm. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh.
1: So the wise men submitted to the King of Kings, they worshiped Jesus. They gave the ultimate response, showing reverence and awe and honor to the God of heaven who became one of us in the person of Jesus. And I got to thinking about this, is that I'm positive that the wise men get all the way to where the star is shining and they go, "Uh, what is this? This is not where we thought, we thought it'd be a palace. We thought it would be different. We thought it would would be a different situation, but they didn't just keep their gifts and turn around and go home. They said, well, if this is how God chose to save the world, if this is the Savior he sent, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to worship him. And I'm going to bow to him. And I'm going to submit to him because this is the king of kings. And that's how you knew their hearts were ready. That's how you knew their hearts were ready to meet the Savior. It reminded me of Psalm 95 and what it teaches us about worship. And it says this in the first eight verses.
2: Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did the day that Massa in the wilderness.
1: Yeah, so this psalm describes worship. It describes putting God in first place, putting God in the center where everything revolves around him. I love verse 3. It says, the Lord is the great, the great king above all gods. There's nothing and no one more worthy than him. This psalm suggests that worship uh, must engage our whole being. Okay, our whole self. In verse one, it says, come sing and shout for joy. That, that really uh, speaks to like our emotions. Worship is an emotional language. It allows us to express emotions that God puts inside of us. And you know, emotions can do different things to different people. Uh, Some of us jump up and down because we're so uh, excited to be in the presence of the Lord. Some of us get goosebumps all up our, our hands. Anyone have that? Like you just feel like you're cold even though the room is hot. Some of us raise our hands, some of us just stand introspectively thinking about the goodness of God. None of it is wrong, it's all the right way to do things. But worship brings an emotional response. It brings an emotional release. But worship isn't only emotional. Worship is also a submission of our will. Verse six says, um, come, let us bow down and worship. In order to fully worship, we have to fully submit our will. Not what I want, God, not my plans, not my preferences. This is all about you. God, you do what you wanna do. That, that's what worship is. So worship engages our emotions, our will, and it also engages our mind. Verse 8 of this psalm says that the Israelites hardened their hearts in the wilderness. They made a cognitive choice to keep it man-centered. They decided what they were going to think about the trials that they were facing. And when they did that, their minds did not worship and their hearts were hardened. You see, worship happens in your emotions, but not just there. It also has to happen in your will and in your mind. And it starts with thinking. It starts with making a rational choice to worship. And so what's so helpful about that is if you come to a space of worship and you're like, I'm not feeling it today, that's fine. You don't have to feel it. You just have to make a rational decision in your mind. It begins with seeing that God is worthy, and I'm going to give him praise for his worth. I'm going to cognitively take inventory of his excellencies. These are the things I'm going to do. And then I'm going to tell my will. You might not feel like worshiping today, but guess what? You're not in charge. You're not on the throne of my life. Jesus Christ is on the throne of my life. And so in my mind, I'm going to make a decision. And in the throne of my life, in my will, I'm going to say, shh, we're going to worship today. (laughs) Quit telling me all the reasons we're not. And then in my emotion, I'm going to say, God, I remember the faithfulness of who you are. I remember what you did for me. And so with my mind and my will and my emotion, I'm going to worship today. Good measure of worship. If it doesn't change you, it's not worship. It might be great cultural experience, emotional experience. It might be a good pick-me-up. It might be good inspiration. You might be like, oh, I love all those songs today. But if it doesn't change you, your emotions, your will, or your mind, then it isn't worship, because worship changes you. I heard this um, analogy once, and it, it stuck with me. Um, you might be surprised, but I actually don't think about galvanized steel very often. <laughs> but um, I heard this analogy once that there's this process in the industrial world called galvanization. and and they dip steel into this protective zinc coating. I think it actually was probably some, um, some uh, show Joel was watching, you know, one of those documentaries about galvanizing things. Uh, and so when you dip it into the zinc, it prevents the steel from rusting, and it gives it a covering of strength. And the Lord spoke to me in that moment, and he said, worship galvanizes your life. That's what it does. It it gives you this protective coating that presents uh, prevents your spiritual life, your integrity, and your purpose to rusting out, okay? It it puts you in a position. Now, I'm not talking about worship like singing your favorite song at your favorite volume and your favorite place. I'm talking about worship in your mind and your will and your emotions, the kind that changes you. That kind that changes you galvanizes your life. It protects your faith. It protects your life. Today we have a choice to respond to Jesus in many ways. Herod opposed the king. The priests dismissed the king. The wise men responded to King Jesus with worship. And so today you can bring your gold because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. We can worship him as the high priest who can sympathize with your weakness and welcomes you just as you are. We can worship him, Emmanuel, God with us, a sympathetic high priest able to understand and aid us, and we can worship him, the humble king who is approachable. He doesn't run away from you or the dirt in your life. He is born to save you from your sin. And we can worship Jesus as Savior, who was born to die in your place, saving his From their sin. So, would you stand? Let's just adore him this morning as we finish up today. Father, I thank you that you are worthy of all the gifts. You're worthy of everything we can bring. And so, God, it's in our mind we choose to worship you today. And we surrender our will to you. God, not what we want, but what you want. And God, we give you all of our emotions. Lord, we praise you with everything we have inside of us like Psalm 95 tells us to do. We repent for the ways we oppose you as king in our lives. God, would you dismantle those things now? Would you bring those to mind now? Would you convict us in the most healthy way, in a way that motivates us to change? God, we invite you to sit on the throne of our lives. God, we take ourselves off so that you, God, can be lord of our life, king of kings, God, we love you today. We don't just love you with our words, but we love you with our actions. We love you by doing what you command. God, make us a people that can prove that with our hearts and our minds, our inner thoughts and our actions. So Jesus, we sing this again today. We love you. We adore you this Christmas season. We adore you as priest, as Lord of lords, and as a suffering servant. God, it's in your name i The we love.
0: Thank you for listening to the Eerie First podcast. We'd love it if you gave us a rating and a review on your podcast app, and please subscribe so you never miss a message. You can follow Erie First on Facebook or Instagram, or visit eriefirst.org for our latest news, announcements, and information. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.